Peter Navarro is the assistant to the president and director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. We're here with Peter Navarro, who's the director of trade and manufacturing for the White House. Mr. Navarro, welcome to the show. Great to see you, sir. Talk about the bad trade policies in the past that America has engaged in um, that has sort of led to this imbalance in trade. Sure, uh, that's an easy one. You start with 1994. Uh, Joe Biden voted for that. Uh, it was what led to Ross Perot's famous giant sucking sound. So NAFTA, uh, I would argue, is the second worst trade deal America ever made. Uh, the first is 2001 when Joe Biden and others voted to let China into the World Trade Organization. Now, with NAFTA, what happened is as soon as NAFTA got in, we saw a tremendous move south uh, of our manufacturing base, uh, auto parts, autos, textiles, all manner of things. And at the front lines of that was states like North Carolina, and then eventually caught up to Detroit, Michigan, and all of that. But once China got into the World Trade Organization in 2001, that was like a hammer blow. Um, they, ha they do what I call the seven deadly sins of protectionism. Uh, what they do, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, they hack our computers, our business computers. They go in and steal our trade secrets, number one. Uh, intellectual property theft. They're just brazen about it. They steal over half a, a trillion, half a trillion dollars a year of our intellectual property. Right? That's number two. Forced technology transfer. This is the idea that if you want access to the Chinese market as an American company, you've got to give them your technology. It's just totally against the rules of the WTO. Number four, dumping. That's sending products below cost. So the, these products come in across a whole panoply into America, below cost, they push our uh, companies out, the workers go with them, boom. Or five, the state-owned enterprises of the Chinese Communist Party. That's basically a, a, a socialist communist country. Uh, our companies, our private corporations are competing against China Inc. and they use all manner of unfair trade practices. Then uh, six, currency manipulation. Uh, for your viewers, it's if, if China undervalues their currency, what that does is it makes their exports cheaper here and their, their, uh, our exports there more expensive. So that spikes the trade deficit. And the last thing they do, uh, Armstrong, is, is, is the seventh deadly sin. Is, it's almost the worst of all. It's the dumping of deadly fentanyl and opioids into our communities. So those are the two biggies. President Trump promised to deal with both of those, and he has. With NAFTA, we have uh, the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. I like to call that the Full Employment Act for American auto workers because the centerpiece of USMCA really is a high level of domestic content for auto production and tough environmental and labor restrictions on Mexico to make sure that, that Detroit and this country gets its fair share. And then with USMCA, it's also got cool stuff for our dairy farmers and uh, other kinds of farmers, um, for our intellectual property and all of that. And then the other thing um, with China, of course, 
President Trump has stood, the only president to ever stand up to China. He's done that. Uh, we got to a phase one deal with deals with some of the seven deadly sins, but I'll be totally honest with you. Um, I feel as the president does that that phase one deal we signed right about over there behind me um, in the east, east wing, uh, it pales in comparison to the damage and the killing that communist China has done to this country by infecting us with that deadly virus. So um, there's a bill coming due on that. Um, we got to get through this election first, but that's that's the big picture. And then, you know, there's other little trade deals like the South Korean deal would have killed our pickup truck um, industry. We're able to get stuff in there for things random like cranberry farmers in Wisconsin that provide 60% of their cranberries. We got those tariffs taken down. We help lobster fishermen uh, up in Maine by taking away the European tariffs. The whole thing here is President Trump focuses on blue collar workers, men and women who work with their hands. And we've seen in this administration a disproportionate rise in their wages. And before the China virus hit, lowest unemployment levels um, in, in history. You know, I'm a son of the South. And tobacco farmers will say that what is happening with the president in China is killing the tobacco industry in America. Your response? My response is that President Trump stands up to communist China on those seven deadly sins, right? We have to do that to preserve our manufacturing base, preserve our jobs, and make our wages go up. Now, what do the communist Chinese do, right? They go for the weak links, right, in our, in our system. So what they did was punish, punish our farmers, including tobacco farmers, soy farmers, all manner. The uh, president has had the backs of those farmers, though, because what we did was we took some of those tariff revenues that we collected from China, we set up a relief fund for farmers, and I think to date, We've handed out something like $18 billion in relief for farmers. Now, farmers, they, 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 don't, they, they, don't, they don't want aid, they want trade, but we have to understand as a country that communist China is targeting those farmers to make our knees buckle, and if our knees buckle, we lose this country. Help us understand this. You, you hear this argument, particularly in the beginning of this pandemic about PPE, the mask, um, the sanitizer, and all the things that America needed during this time of the pandemic. And what people will say, even though the pandemic started in Wuhan, China, America is still dependent on the Chinese to get their basic products to fight the pandemic. And the Chinese can still have the upper hand and send um, faulty products. How does that how do we get away from having such a dependency on the Chinese, not only just with the PPE, but a lot of the drugs and a lot of the vitamins that come from that part of the world? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, that was an epiphany, not for me, but for most of the rest of the country. I knew this all along, that when that virus hit, we were dangerously dependent on China uh, for gla uh, goggles, gloves, the N95 respirators, which is a gold standard, as well as for all of the essential medicines, some like over 30 medicines we need to treat the China virus. Now, um, there's a couple things to say about this. The first thing we have to recognize is that when this pandemic started in November in Wuhan, China, China kept it quiet. 
And during December and January, when they knew there was human-to-human -human transmission, there was going to be a pandemic, they did two things that are reprehensible. Every American should be angry about this. The first thing they did was they locked down travel within China, but they sent Chinese nationals internationally to go wherever they wanted to go. That effectively seeded and spreaded the virus, guaranteed a pandemic. Was that intentional? That was intentional. I believe that was intentional. Uh, and, and we can talk about that. But, but the other thing they did, which was, which was premeditated murder of the American people and people around the world, uh, was they went from a net exporter of PPE to a net import. What they did was they vacuumed up all of the PPP, PPE around the world over a two two month period. It was just, yeah, and they, you can see it in their own government official data, right? They go from a net exporter to a big net importer. So you really think the Chinese actually weaponized their virus because they can't defeat us militarily, they can't defeat us economically, so they saw an opportunity to weaken America? Here's the question. We know, I think, with a high likelihood that the virus originated in a biological weapons lab in Wuhan. We don't know whether it accidentally escaped or whether it was released intentionally, okay? But take that, take that off the table. We do know that once it got out, the Chinese communists knew that it, there was going to be a pandemic, knew there was human-to-human -human transmission. They let that happen. Now, was that a calculated strategic choice in order to relatively weaken the rest of the world so they could advance their strategic agenda? Here's the case for that. If you look at what they have been doing, right, with their authoritarian system, uh, they, they have been trying to exploit this pandemic. What'd they do? They took over Hong Kong, right? All those people that were out protesting in the streets, those people had to go into buildings. And once that happened and the world was preoccupied, they, the Chinese communists crushed Hong Kong like a bug. Gone, Hong Kong gone. What else did they do? They invaded India. The last time they invaded India was when? During the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, when the world was preoccupied. Now, what they're doing is they're offering PPE, they're offering vaccines to countries around the world in exchange for favors to the Chinese Communist Party. Poster child for that is the Philippines. Philippines, in many ways, holds an important key to preventing China from militarizing the South China Sea because the Philippines prosecuted successfully a case in the international courts which stops the Chinese from doing that, right? So what the Chinese have said, we'll give you a vaccine priority access, but you want to not, not prosecute that claim. So we see strategically, they're clearly trying to exploit it. And, and look at us. I mean, we were, we were like, we were the strongest economy ever under Donald J. Trump. We were, were in control, we standing up to China. And now what do we got? We got, we got problems. We got problems internally, and and I, I don't know if the Chinese are this smart, but maybe they figured that they wouldn't get blamed. President Trump would get blamed for the virus, and it would take him down in an election. Let me let me move the conversation along in, in a in a different direction. You know, obviously, the mainstream media, whether intentional or not, appear.
to always give the Chinese a pass. Always. They're very, um, they have no uh, problems criticizing the president, making it seem as though that whatever the beef the president may have with China is personal and it has nothing to do with the trade imbalance and the future of America. And America wants to begin becoming a manufacturing giant. Talk about perception versus reality. The difference that President Trump in his last four years has, has made in terms of turning the clock and making the playing field ease, even and how that benefit everyday Americans in the future. There's a, there's a term that uh, Marx and Lenin used called useful idiots. Useful idiots. It described people and institutions within a society that the communists could use basically to enhance their own power, right? Enhance their own power. What we have now, uh, I think, is, is a media uh, and a Democrat party which is so intent on defeating Donald Trump and so much of the belief that the best way to do that is to beat him upside the head with the China virus that they have to blame him and any discussion of China's responsibility in this matter would weaken that case so they don't do that. And, and, and I'm reminded of Corey Lewandowski's um, remark about how they hate Donald Trump more than they love this country because communist China has been coming to get us with their trade policy. They shut down over 70,000 of our factories or took over 5 million manufacturing jobs. And now with the Chinese Communist Party virus, they've killed over 200,000 Americans. They put tens of millions of Americans out of work and they've cost us trillions of dollars. Now you tell me, why isn't the mainstream media blaming China or at least giving them some responsibility for that, the only answer can be is they want to blame 100% Donald J. Trump for something that he had nothing to do with. Talk about how the changing of these dynamics will benefit Americans. And is there a possibility that manufacturing will come back? And even though Americans will probably pay a higher cost, is it worth the investment? Absolutely. and and. Here's the thing, during Obama-Biden, we lost 200,000 manufacturing jobs. In June of 2016, when Barack Obama was stumping for Hillary Clinton, he said you'd need a magic wand to bring those manufacturing jobs back. He, he basically gave up the ghost on that. It's like, no, 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 no. What we did as of January 2020 was bring back 500,000 manufacturing jobs. It can be done. And you know, the upside of that, besides having a stronger manufacturing base and a stronger defense industrial base, we saw blue collar wages disproportionately rise. And that's critical to, not just to our economy, but to our society. Because it's, it's those manufacturing communities, which, which basically the glue that binds this country, that got taken apart after China joined the World Trade Organization and descended into the hell of fentanyl and opioid addiction. And um, my whole focus as the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy is to help the president onshore those jobs. So we've taken a number of steps. The president signed an order 
um, for Buy American for Essential Medicines. It was, I think, the ninth executive order we've done on Buy American and Hire American. It's his two, two simple rules. We doubled uh, the amount of steel in Buy American projects by the government from 50 to 95%. These are the kinds of things we do. And you know, I can take you, Armstrong, I take you around the country. It's like we do these, we, we do five things, tax cuts, deregulation, uh, fair trade, um, increased defense spending, and um, strategic energy dominance, okay? That's, that's the five points that accomplish we use to grow the economy. Now, every one of those things, Joe Biden does just the opposite, just the opposite. I share the view with the president that if, if Biden gets elected, we will have a Great Depression. And the reason is not just because he's going to raise taxes, which, which harms growth. He's going to raise regulations, which harms growth. He's going to shut down our oil industry, which will just kill us. All of that is true. But we've also got structural problems in this economy because of the pandemic. We're seeing jobs in things like service sector, restaurants, entertainment, which transportation. Um, there's going to be an, a realignment. And my, here's the thing. If unless we onshore our jobs, manufacture what we use here, we're not going to have enough jobs for our people at decent wages. So that's what that's what I'm focused on. Where did you grow up? Uh, <laughs> I was a gypsy. OK, my uh, my dad, my dad was uh, a professional musician. So early in my life, uh, we, we literally lived out of a an old Ford Fairlane station wagon, and uh, we'd go up up uh, up north in the winter. Uh, excuse me, in the summer, and he'd be like the house band, and then we'd go south somewhere. And then uh, finally, uh, I settled down a little bit. Uh, and then right here in um, uh, my mom, uh, after my dad left, uh, she worked uh, at a department store right right here, and I went to high school right here. What was interesting for me, the other thing I think that shaped, shaped me was I always grew up uh, in places where there was, was more affluent people as well. And I could, I, you know, they, they took everything for granted. They just had no, no idea. What they had. Yeah, so I'm living in Bethesda. My mom's working her butt off. I'm sleeping on the couch in the living room and I'm going to school with a, with a bunch of silver spoon kids and things like that and thinking they, they just, they don't work hard. They didn't work hard, okay? They took it all for granted. And I, you know, it stuck with me. So you know what it's like to struggle? Oh yes, yes, I do. Um, so, you know, poor single parent family. You know, that's, that's how I lived. I, I, never, had a, I never had a bedroom. Uh, when I was a kid, I was always sleeping on the couch and stuff like that. I don't have, I didn't have it as bad as a lot of folk, but um, but it's not. I a wasn't spoon. born. It's not a I was, spoon No, spoon. I know. <laughs> no, it was a, it was a tough life. My mom made fifty bucks a week back in the day, and uh, I had a brother, and you know, we got by. What, what shaped your value system? I think my mom. She had a really good compass, and and. Uh, Family was important to her, and um, she just worked. You know, she she worked 10, 12 hours a day, and then she'd bring bring that stuff home and work, and um, worked her way up uh, from 
secretary to uh, um, in in uh, in the sacks. Uh, she she ran her own department and stuff like that. And I admired her. Do you think your parents would be surprised that you actually have worked in the White House as the director of trade my mom, and manufacturing? My mom is 96. She lives down in Delray Beach, and um, she loves to read read about. Uh, President Trump every day and see what I'm doing. She's proud of me. My dad passed long ago, so I, I don't know if he would have ever guessed what I'd wind up doing. Uh, but um, yeah, it's been a journey. Listen, I appreciate um, your, your talking to us and uh, I appreciate your talking about subjects that you don't normally talk about. That's fine. Sometimes we need to know this story because everybody thinks when you work at the White House, you grow up with a silver spoon in the mouth and that's, that's not necessarily true. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to subscribe.